We return this morning after a couple of weeks away from it to the book of Genesis, picking up at the end of the 21st chapter to which I invite you to turn with me, Genesis chapter 21 and there to verse 33. We considered last week on the threshold of a new year that the future, all unknown to us, is known perfectly to God. And that in fact, whatever lies ahead of us, in all of it, God goes before us and God goes with us. In some ways, the passage before us, this history we read this morning, is simply a living example of what we heard last week, what it means to live by that very same faith. In fact, the same Moses who told the people, as we read uh, last week, be strong and very courageous, also told those same children of Israel this very history with these very words. In fact, that we hear this morning with our physical and with our spiritual ears, to which, and I invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, indeed, we pray, open our ears to hear your word and to receive marvelous things from your law and conform our lives to it, we pray. Fill us with the faith and the hope and the love and the truth of your word, we pray, as we are conformed to it by your spirit now. Speak for your servants are listening, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 21, we pick up at verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, after Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, then, he, then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, uh, both of them together. They went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now watch here as the narrative slows down almost into slow motion as we draw nigh this terrible moment. Even single movements are now captured by Moses' pen by the Spirit's inspiration. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son 
and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It must certainly be one of the best known stories in all of scripture, the almost slaying of Isaac, Abraham's son. Now there are some very important reasons for that. For one, it is a story and by story, of course, I mean historical account. This is history in the truest sense, but it is also a superbly and skillfully told story. I say it is so well known a story, <clears throat> first of all, because it's so gripping. This is what we might call white knuckle history. The whole account rises intention with every phrase and practically every word. After we are, what we're led to believe may have been years of heaven's silence, Abraham pla having planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and having settled in the land of the Philistines for some time, probably enjoying a time of quiet existence after the tumultuous events of his life, Enjoying a rest now from his labors, God's voice is suddenly heard. Abraham! And the voice grips the patriarch's heart and he rises in attention. Here am I. Abraham's response reminds us, doesn't it, of the willingness of Abraham always to hear his God, his Father's voice and immediately to submit to it. But I ask you this could Abraham have even begun to imagine what submission would require of him this time? I tell you, in Abraham's wildest dreams, no, in his most terrible nightmares. He could never have conjured up the darkness that was to befall his heart this day. Isaac was, you know, Abraham's son, his dearly beloved son. God reminds him in verse 2 as though he needed reminding. But he was even more than that. He was... He was not only Abraham's dearly beloved son, he was also, and God emphasizes this as well, he was Abraham's only son. Ishmael, the, the son that Abraham had had with Sarah's Egyptian servant, was gone. A heartbreak still on Abraham, fresh in Abraham's heart. But even when he had been in Abraham's camp, he was not the only son 
Ishmael wasn't, not in the sense that Isaac is. By making this point that Isaac is Abraham's only son, God emphasizes again that it is through Isaac and only through Isaac that the promises that God has made to him are to come about. Only through Isaac can Abraham see with his own eyes, as it were, the future, the, the possession of the land, the descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Only in his son Isaac's eyes does Abraham get a glimpse, the glimmer of the one who was to be born, who would come to be his savior, but not only his, the savior of the whole world, all nations being blessed through him. Stakes, therefore, are very high. As Theodore Beza, John Calvin's <clears throat> colleague and successor, who was a poet before he was a Christian theologian, puts the thoughts on Abraham's mind in this dramatic poem devoted to this episode, he writes, Because, O God, this is thy pleasure, it is sure that it is right, and so I shall obey. But in obeying, shall I not make God a liar? For he promised this to me, that from my son Isaac there would come forth a mighty nation who would fill this land with Isaac dead, the covenant dies too. It was on this anvil of the irreplaceability of Isaac that the blow of God's hammer falls with this command to take and slay Isaac as a burnt offering. Of course, it was also across the tender and loving heart, the father's heart who loved this son Isaac, who loved him as much as he loved life itself, that God's command cut and cut deeply. Now between verses two and three, we come to the first place in this history where we sort of hold our breath to see what's going to happen. Will Abraham obey? Will he go to the mountain that the Lord has shown him? Will he slay his son? Yes, he will. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. What prompt obedience. We're wont to say, what prompt obedience. Look at how anxious Abraham is to do God's will, how readily he carries out God's orders. He gets up early. He saddles his donkey. He takes two of his men and, the, and his son, and he cuts the wood. With what urgency Abraham wants to obey the Lord. Oh, Really? That's the typical understanding, the common understanding of this passage. But I ask you, are, are you really ready to put Abraham up on a plane so different from all other flesh? Are we ready to say that Abraham is so completely detached from human emotion that he would actually rush ahead to do God's will, no matter how gruesome, no matter how dark, no matter how grotesque, no matter how heart-wrenching, no matter how confusing, no matter how baffling, 
No. Look again at the details. He rises early, yes. But what does he do? First, he saddles the donkey. Then he takes two of his men. Then he gets his son, and then I, I don't know how else to read it. While his servants stand there and watch, this man, well over 100 years old, starts chopping the wood. Abraham has it all backwards. He puts the first thing last and the last thing first. His mind is flying about. His thoughts are almost incoherent. It seems to me, you don't begin by saddling the donkey. You first cut the wood. And a century-old man with a cadre of servants doesn't, stand, doesn't cut wood while the servants watch. This is the picture of a man who is completely distracted. Which is why I'm convinced Abraham rose early that day. I'd love to think pietistical thoughts for Abraham here, happy and anxious to obey right away. The truth is Abraham couldn't sleep. He wakes up before the light of dawn and his head is whirling over what he has been told to do and sleep escapes him. Now we look at this history, we look at it backwards and we say, well, it really wasn't all that bad. Look how it turned out after all. But that's just the point. Abraham didn't know how these things were going to turn out. Abraham couldn't see the future. He couldn't tell. There was only for Abraham the mist that we heard about last Lord's Day, the future all unknown. There was for Abraham only the bare commandment of God, which commands seemed to contradict even God himself. It defied what Abraham had come to know about God, and that from God himself. What's going on here? What is this history all about? What is God doing? Well, to be certain, God is going to reveal to us more about the way in which he is, has accomplished our salvation. We are about to be shown with Abraham a brilliant picture of Christ and the clearest explanation of the gospel since Genesis 3.15. And Lord willing, we'll return to that thought next week. But scripture itself explains to us what's happening here. It's there in verse 1. It's laid out for us. God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. In other words, the first purpose of this terrible ordeal is to put Abraham's faith to the test. Why? Could it be that Abraham had come to love his son too much, that he loved him more than he loved God? Did Abraham need to have the strings of his heart for Isaac loosened a bit? Had he fixed his hopes in, in Isaac in a way he should only have set them in the Lord? We simply don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us what the reason is. God never tells us. In fact, he never really tells Abraham. 
Oh, he tells Abraham that he knows after the fact that Abraham truly fears him, not withholding his son, his only son from him, but God never explains what has happened. And our family, we're reading, currently making our way through uh, the book of Job. There's another example of a man who, who faced baffling and stinging providences without a stitch of divine explanation. And we can multiply the examples. In all such cases, we encounter what Martin Luther called Deus absconditus, the hidden God. I use that phrase, some of you may remember, several years ago in a sermon on Mary and Martha, that their faith was stretched paper thin, waiting for Jesus to answer their appeals to come. Their dear brother and his good friend was sick. And yet Jesus was nowhere to be seen until their dear brother lay in the grave four days. It all seemed to defy their understanding of the ways of God, just as it must have defied Abraham's understanding and seemed to them virtually to contradict what they had come to know about God, about his character and his ways with his people. Now, none of those cases, of course, did God actually contradict himself or what he has said about himself or revealed about himself, but it remains the fact even today and and every day and all over the world and particularly to his children that it is impossible for us to reconcile much of what happens and of what we undergo with what God has promised and told us. The Bible itself tells us in any number of ways that it is so and that it is no shame for us to confess even as the biblical writers plainly do. God's Ways are hidden. They're beyond finding out. His thoughts are infinitely beyond our thoughts. And yet there are a couple of important lessons for us to draw from this text before us this morning. The first is this. By testing, true faith is proven true. It is by putting our faith to the test. It is by, by stretching our faith and requiring our faith that God develops our faith to the fullest extent. It's by causing us to depend upon Him even when what, when what He wills seems so wrong. At the time, it does anyway that that he helps us to understand and to learn how to de depend upon him apart from sight, apart from understanding. Which is just another way of defining faith, isn't it? Like if we could see everything, if we could understand everything that God is doing in this vast web of human relationships and his intricate providences, I say if we could see it all, then we wouldn't be living by faith, would we? We'd be living by sight. But the fact is we cannot even of our own sight, of our own 
wisdom. You and I can't even define what is right from what is wrong. But because he is all wise and because he sees the beginning from the end, he also and he alone knows what is our good. And he is working it out, all of it, every single detail of it for our good, according to his own promises. Meanwhile, it pleases the Lord from time to time to put our faith, may we say it, through the ringer. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and in honor to God. Don't be surprised by this, Christians. Don't let it take you by surprise when terrible trials come. They await us. We know not what awaits us really around the very next bend. But we do know that God has laid it out every one of our days. In fact, as the psalmist says, before one of them comes to be, are ordained all of them and all of their events for our good and for our growth in faith and in trust and his everlasting wisdom and goodness and power. And that doesn't mean that uh, those trials, those testings of our faith are going to be easy. Look at Abraham. He had, he had three long days of traveling with his son, his dear son, his beloved son, his precious son, walking right next to him. Three days to turn this thought over one way and another in his mind. He saw it a thousand times in his mind before the moment of truth arrived in earnest. The binding of his own son's hands, the laying of him on the altar, the knife, the blood. As Calvin observed, the delay made Abraham's ordeal the more painful. God, he wrote, God does not require him to put his son immediately to death, but compels him to revolve this execution in his mind during three whole days that in preparing to sacrifice his son, he may still more severely torture all his senses. Helps us to understand then the pathos of that moment when Isaac breaks the thick silence between them as the two go side by side together up the mountain with my father. And Abraham's reply, here I am, my son. Sometimes God's tests of our faith will feel like like they're turning us inside out. I know, I've seen many of you pass through them over these years and there, is, there are many more for us to undergo. And oftentimes they will come like 
this one did to Abraham when you least expect it, when things otherwise are going quite well. But this is what God is after in them all, an ever stronger faith, because faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith, it has been said, is like a muscle that grows stronger as the weight increases that it must lift. It grows by believing always, though in the teeth of adversity and even in the bitter lack of understanding of God's inscrutable providences. That is, after all, when faith is really faith, isn't it? When it believes not only apart from seeing, but believes against what is seen. That is faith. You may remember when C.S. Lewis's screw tape, the senior devil says to Wormwood, the apprentice devil, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. It is against that sort of faith, brothers and sisters, that Satan is powerless and rendered weak and powerless. And that is why God's tests of your faith, why he, that is why he tests your faith, why he stretches your faith and tries your faith, even at times with fire so that your faith will be a faith that overcomes, that is victorious. It is by testing that true faith is proven true. And then second, it is by the testing of faith that the object of faith is truly known. Abraham knew God. We've established that. He, he had walked with God, he had heard the voice of God, but there was more. There is always more for us to learn about the character and the ways of God with his children. And God knows that the best way for us to come these, to know these things about him, indeed the best way to know him, is to experience him. It's one thing to know that if you fall backwards into the pool, your father can catch you. It's quite another to know it by experience when you feel his strong arms around you. God could raise the dead. Abraham knew that. Elementary, but never did he know it like he did on Mount Moriah as he took the knife in hand to slay his son. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us that by faith he considered that God was able to raise even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. Abraham knew, of course he knew intellectually that God could raise the dead. He knew that God was all powerful, but never did that faith in the resurrection power of God live and breathe in him, and never did he grasp it in fullness like he did that day when his eyes were set on his son bound and on the altar. You and I talk about God being sufficient for us. Sometimes we even say it glibly about him being strong in our weakness. But it is not until we have to rely upon it, upon that strength fully, until we truly are reduced to total weakness that we know so clearly and so well the strength of God made perfect. But that is the way God wants us to know him. Not merely from a catechism list of attributes, important as that is, children keep studying your catechisms. But not only as a list of attributes, but God wants us to know him from experience. And know him we do best when our faith is stretched like a balloon over the contours of his character. In fact, Abraham did discover something in God that he <clears throat> did not know before, or at least did not know perfectly. Namely, that God was Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees to it, or in other words, the Lord who provides. Only the trial, this terrible ordeal, could fully make that known to him. And so it is to us the very same. And the trial of our faith, the object of our faith, who is God, is truly known. Theodore Beza picks up on this when he places on Abraham's lips this conclusion of the matter. If then to borrow Isaac is thy will, wherefore should I complain at thy command? For he is thine, he was received from thee. And when thou hast taken him again, rather wilt thou arouse him from the dead than that thy promise should not come to pass. Yet, Lord, thou knowest that I am but man, incompetent to do or think what's good. But thanks to thine unconquerable power, he who believes knows all is possible. Away with flesh, away with sentiment, all human passions, now withdraw yourselves. Nothing is right for me and nothing good but what is pleasing to the Lord himself. O heaven and thou land of promise, bear witness now that faithful Abraham has by God's grace such persevering faith that notwithstanding every human thought, 
God never speaks a single word in vain. Amen.